You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 16th of May 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller. On today's show... I wouldn't look for economic aid from us. I think what uh, the prospect of, uh, for North Korea is to become a normal nation, uh, to behave and interact with the rest of the world uh, the way South Korea does. This would appear to be a work in progress. Objecting to the pronouncements of US National Security Advisor John Bolton, Pyongyang threatens to pull the plug on next month's summit. My guests Mary Dejewski and Shashank Joshi will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including Russia's alleged new superweapon, a former Prime Minister of Pakistan causing scandal by saying what he actually thinks, and how much cause for street parties is a new security agreement between Pakistan and Afghanistan. That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24 right now. So, welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Mary Dejewski, columnist for The Independent and The Guardian, and Shashank Joshi, Senior Research Fellow at the Royal United Services Institute. Welcome both. And we start with worrying news for anybody who piled in early on flights to Singapore for the Donald Trump-Kim Jong-un summit scheduled for June 12th. In a development which could only have been predicted by anybody with even the vaguest understanding of the history of North Korean diplomacy, North Korea has introduced a measure of doubt about whether their guy will show up. The Pyongyang regime appears to have suddenly recalled how very much it dislikes US National Security Advisor John Bolton and how very much it intends to keep its nuclear weapons. Um, Shashank, this comes a day, of course, after North Korea pulled the plug on a meeting with South Korea. Um, they have there, there is a pattern uh, emerging, I think it's fair to say, after several decades of this kind of thing. What are they actually doing? Well, I'm not convinced they're doing that much different to what the Americans are doing, which is building up leverage ahead of talks. I, I don't see this as a catastrophe just yet. Um, you look, the Americans have, have made some very robust statements, including John Bolton in the run-up to this, saying they won't let up on maximum pressure. They demand certain things from North Korea. It's, it's in North Korea's DNA, and really, as any negotiating state would do, to push back. I think they're also exploring a little bit of the gaps that are opening up between people like Mike Pompeo, who are suggesting perhaps a more flexible stance in these talks, saying, you know, look, we can imagine outcomes short of complete denuclearization. And John Bolton, who is saying nothing short of groveling in front of us will do. So, of course, they're exploiting these gaps. But actually, you know what? I, I still would put money on these talks going ahead as of now. Uh, Mary, is it significant that they are, are turning their um, considerable ire uh, on John Bolton rather than Donald Trump? I mean, obviously, they have reasons enough for disliking John Bolton, and they're not alone in that. Uh, in particular, John Bolton's... I, I, don't, I don't even know if it was a well-meaning statement, this idea that North Korea could follow the Libyan model uh, of disarmament, because if I was in Kim Jong-un's position, I, I would not regard that as encouraging, uh, given uh, what eventually occurred occurred to Colonel Gaddafi. I mean, is, is it, do you just think, is this just North Korea grandstanding to try and keep the US and everybody else slightly off balance? Well, I think there's a lot of that. And I agree with Shashank absolutely that there is leverage on both sides. Um, 
before they go into these talks because, you know, it has to be said, certainly in the United States and probably in North Korea, though we're probably never going to know, there is opposition to this meeting. There is quite strong opposition to this meeting. Um, so I do think it's also significant, as you suggested, that um, North Korea hasn't turned its eye on Donald Trump. And incidentally, you see exactly the same thing with Russia. They don't turn their eye officially on Trump. They do it with, with, with the sort of subordinates. And John Bolton is such, a, such an easy target. All that having been said, though, I do think that by putting John Bolton out there um, in the terms that he uses and in that patronising, condescending, absolutist terms that he uses, um, the American, I don't think the Americans are playing this particularly wisely. And the other thing I don't think they've played particularly wisely, um, if they're serious about wanting this meeting to happen, and I also agree that on balance I think it will still happen, why have they actually either continued with the timetable or rejected the idea of suspending the joint manoeuvres that they have, that the Americans have with the South? Well, I think that's Why do something one. like that between yeah. naming the day for the summit and it actually happening? You know, I think that's really interesting. They, they did scale down the activity, so that's part of the answer. But actually, what's also a bit, a bit puzzling here is there were indications that Kim Jong-un had suggested to the South, to Moon Jae-in, after that historic meeting, particularly mm -hmm. between their national security advisors before that, that the North was okay with exercises. Um, and that was a really interesting signal that we all thought mm -hmm. as observers was being sent by the North to say, we are showing flexibility. So perhaps some misunderstandings have crept in here. That is possible. These are two countries who really don't have any real understanding of each other after all. But that's um, th there's a ritual quality for that though, isn't there, Shashank? The, the objection to the South Korea-US drill yeah. th th this year, I think, going by the name Max Thunder. Well, they always <laughs> have very showy, I know, I, 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 indulgent I, names. I basically course, just wanted to say Max Thunder. You want to say Max Thunder. <laughs> it, it yes, sounds, of course. It's, I, I, I'm thinking of changing my name by Deed Pop. It would be a fine name. But, of course, the key to these things is not is not the name, as, as fantastical as they are. It's what is included, mm -hmm. right? It's certain types of platforms always tweak the North's nose. Are there B-2 bombers? Do they talk about nuclear strike capability? How big are the exercises? In actual fact, we are seeing flexibility. Uh, but I think maybe some misunderstandings Misunderstandings, misunderstandings did creep in here. Uh, it would sound amazing, wouldn't it? Sorry to obsess on this. You're listening to Monocle 24. I'm Max Thunder. Um, <laughs> it would give you more gravitas. <laughs> are you saying I lack gravitas now? <laughs> Even more. Dear, oh dear. Um, Mary, what is the, the... It seems a strange question to ask about Donald Trump. What is the smart move for Donald Trump at this point? Is it just to say nothing, uh, allow North Korea to ride this tantrum out and assume it will happen or, and maybe agree, all right, we'll leave John Bond at home. How do you react to this? Yes, I mean, I, w I would say um, silence and restraint um, would be a good <laughs> recipe. The, the, the but of course, as you, which Trump is most as you respond, <laughs> this is going to be extremely difficult for him to observe. But so far, you know, it has to be said, we've had nearly 24 hours of this sort of mini standoff. And I don't think we've had a single tweet from Donald Trump on the Korean issue. No, and in fact, the uh, White House has also walked back 
John Bolton's agreement. So I think what we're seeing is what Lawrence Friedman, the military historian, called de-Boltonization. Uh, and, and if that is what we're, the path we're on and it lays the, the ground to the summit, so be it. And that's well, well, on that subject, Shashank, are we about to learn over the coming weeks, possibly months and years, just how many different things the word denuclearization can exactly mean? exactly right. This is a negotiation about the meaning of denuclearization. Right? And that's why it's so dangerous. If the US goes in there with an overly rigid view of this, then that that potentially leaves us open to Trump feeling very betrayed, falling back onto the path of, of escalation, fire and fury. Whereas if we can find a path to, for example, cutting ICBM numbers, cutting warhead numbers, retaining some capability, that is a much better outcome. Of course, there's also risks in that because what is a good denuclearization for America, you know, cutting ICBMs but leaving shorter range missiles in place, that may be a very bad denuclearization for Japan. So um, there are many possible outcomes uh, and there's not a single good outcome for all actors. Regional allies like Japan may have something to fear here as well. And there's an extra aspect to that, which is what is the message that North Korea may or may not have taken from Trump reneging on the Iran nuclear deal, withdrawing the US from the from the Iran nuclear deal. Because in a way, those two things, while completely not linked, you can see that from North Korea's point of view, they say, well, you know, we'll agree so and so, but what about the other side? Okay, well, let's move along slightly from the discombobulatingly newfangled arms race with North Korea to the reassuringly old-school arms race with Russia. Russia claims, or has arranged for people to claim to Western news outlets on Russia's behalf, to have tested a new weapon, which the United States, and therefore presumably everybody else, is unable to defend against. It is called, it says here, the avant-garde hypersonic glide vehicle, who sound like they might have opened for craft work, uh, and will be ready for service by 2020. It appears to be the weapon which President Vladimir Putin referred to in his very weird show-and-tell presentation in the course of his State of the Nation address in March. Um, a show of hands around the table. Does anyone understand what a hypersonic glide vehicle is? It's actually quite ingenious. You basically... I, I knew you'd know the answer to this, Shashank. <laughs> you know, you, you get a normal rocket, normal ICBM, you fire it really high, and instead of going even higher and then shooting back down at high speed, you actually have uh, another missile that glides off that at the edge of the atmosphere and then when it's over its target it glides in a very rapid about roughly one to five miles per second uh, 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 speed in a very maneuverable way onto its target in a way that's incredibly hard for traditional ballistic missile defenses to stop. So actually, unlike some of the other stuff he talked about in that show, this is a weapon that the Americans, the Chinese, even the Australians, the French, the Indians have been thinking about. And of course, the great appeal is that it, it's so fast, so maneuverable, so uh, um, evasive, you just can't stop it using ballistic missiles. Although, to be fair, ballistic missile defenses don't work anyway, so um, <laughs> they can't stop normal missiles, they really can't stop this missile. Uh, Mary, the, the, the claim being floated by Russia or on Russia's behalf, you know, that, that it can't be defended against, that's a that's kind of daft, isn't it? Because the, cause the, <laughs> the, well, because the reality is that even if you were to unleash one or several uh, hypersonic glide vehicles at the United States, the United States would still possess the wherewithal to reduce Russia to rubble by return of serve. I mean, yes, that is true. Um, but I think that um, the United States does have a degree of concern that Russia has 
maybe found a gap in its defences and that it adds a new dimension to the whole complexion of conventional and nuclear defence where there are all sorts of agreements either in place or that um, take the ABM treaty which um, the United States withdrew from Um, and the idea that Russia has something which is outside this all these deals I think that's something that, that the United States could find rather worrying and I also think that it's something that Russia has been deliberately aiming at because they were really hurt and upset. You know, I know it's hard to think of Russia in those terms, but they were. When George Bush unilaterally abrogated the ABM Treaty, Russia felt that a huge sort of guarantee of uh, of international security had been violated. Um, And I think ever since then, um, the Russians have been working on something that they wanted to demonstrate that they could do something high-tech too, um, and something that was sort of outside the ordinary. And the way that Shashank describes it is interesting because it's so far from the sort of clumsiness, heavyweight, and generally sort of um, non-nimble sort of thing that Russia is Russia is identified with. Um, suddenly, it's got something quite different, and I think that Russia would find that really quite pleasing. I think the issue is not only that it uh, it fills these chinks in Russia's armour a bit and eases their concern that perhaps uh, advances in missile defence will blunt their old arsenal but actually there's another concern here which is um you know even if even if all that plays out nothing changes each side can obliterate the other there is a slight problem here which is that weapons like this and the russians are not the only ones developing these um they do reduce warning times because not only can you not stop them but you also can't detect them very easily normally when you fire an icbm it gives away smoke trails you can spot those with satellites um you can see these things because they go so high their path is very clear with these types of things, um, there is perhaps a bigger concern that if they can strike at targets a bit more suddenly, um, America could be disarmed a little bit more unexpectedly and quickly. So it could in turn, and of course this is a reciprocal process, prompt changes in American posture to be a little bit more hair-trigger, or it could it could delay them from moving away from those postures. So I think it makes everyone a little bit more nervous at the same time. Uh, Mary, from Russia's point of view, why does it feel the need to... Uh possess these weapons. I mean, I understand for every country, the development of weapons technology has a kind of a momentum of its own. People just like to make the better version of the thing they already have. Um, Does Russia genuinely feel actually threatened, like in terms of losing territory by anybody at all? I'm not sure that it feels threatened in terms of losing territory. It feels threatened in terms of its security. And um, that, you know, you can say, well, that's a sort of eternal Russian feeling. It's a um, sort of eternal everybody's feeling. It's, 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 yes, it's, it's, but, it's but not it's a, a feeling uncommon among people who have borders with Russia either. No, but it's a feeling that is not that often identified with Russia, at least not on the Western side. And my view is that the uh, that Russia's sense of vulnerability um, is something which is actually crucial to understanding why Russia and why Putin behave as they do um, in all sorts of circumstances. And that, to me, would include um, the annexation of Crimea. Um, But 
And I think to interpret it as so often and so universally on the Western side as saying well, Russia is incredibly strong, Russia is aggressive, not it's offensive, it's not defensive. Um, I think that is a crucial misreading of Russia, and that unless you identify its its insecurity as a key to a lot of its thinking, including the development of you know, new weapons. And as I referred to before, the the, the, the end of the ABM treaty, um, Russia saw that as a huge threat as it sees the advance of NATO. You know, I've, I, I see maps practically every time I go to Russia. You see one newspaper or other um, or one television program or other, which has, as it were, the reverse, the mirror image of a Western map. And the Russian map has things like the um, the Baltic states and the former satellite states to the west of Russia are shown with enormous arrows and numbers of Western troops that are just ready to launch into Russia. And, of course, we see the whole thing the other way around. There's about 800 of them in Estonia, so they're not going to get very far, are they? <laughs> Just a very brief final thought on that, Mary. Where does that sense of Russia's vulnerability, which, as you correctly point out, seems certainly from a Western perspective mildly preposterous. It's an enormous, uh, very well-defended and, as, have, as people have learned, difficult-to-conquer country. Is it just an atavistic hangover from the Second World War? Well, um, I think if you were looking at it um, from the Kremlin, and obviously you know this is not the way we necessarily see it um but how they see it is that um their weakness after the collapse of the soviet union that russia russia was a weak country even even weaker considerably weaker um than it is now and that it's vulnerability was exploited by the West and specifically by NATO to expand to the East. And they see Ukraine, The one of the whole difficulties of Ukraine was that Russia saw that as, as it were, the next Western front that the West was going to advance into. OK, we'll take a short break now. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with Mary Dijewski and Shashank Joshi. Coming up next, politics in Pakistan and where to now for the Taliban. Do stay tuned. The Monocle Quality of Life Conference returns for a fourth year, and this time we're touching down in Zurich. Join Monocle's editors and a lineup of tack-sharp panellists for lively debate, informed conversation and top-notch hospitality. Whether you're an architect, city maker, retailer, media mogul or chef, pick up a ticket and be part of the debate on upping quality of life across the board. This year, there will also be a special focus on entrepreneurship and making it in the city. We'll be diving headlong into all Zurich has to offer, from fine food, Swiss wine and river swims, to private tours of the best shops and ateliers. So why not join us from the 28th to the 30th of June? Find out more and book your ticket now at conference.monocle.com. You're back with Midori House with me, Andrew Muller. Still with me are Mary Dijewski and Shashank Joshi. And let's look now at former Prime Minister of Pakistan, Nawaz Sharif, who has livened up his retirement by unburdening himself of a few trenchant opinions to the local press. Sharif, presently banned from holding public office by Pakistan's Supreme Court, told Pakistani newspaper Dawn that Pakistan risked global isolation regarded as untowardly soft on terrorism. Specifically, he referred to the 2008 attacks on New Delhi 
heavily by the militants of Lashkar-e-Taiba and stated plainly, as India always has and Pakistan has always denied, that the group was based in Pakistan. Shashank, he's not wrong, is he? No, he's right, but you have to feel sorry for him. You know, the poor man has been kicked out of office. You <laughs> know, more a time. novel take on Nawal Sharif, but we'll we'll let you go with it. Well, yes, it, it, it is hard to feel sorry for a sort of a highly kleptocratic, corrupt, <laughs> you know, ultra-conservative, Punjabi landowning, you know, semi-feudal politician. But, but, when you look all at... That his, aside. All that aside. When you look at his opponents and you look at the sort of Pakistan army looming over him, having tossed him out of office in the 90s, tossed him out of office after uh, the Cargill War in, in, in 99, in a coup, tossed him out of office yet again, this time via the machinations of the Pakistani Supreme Court. This is born of enormous frustration on his part, that after his third stint as Prime Minister, he was unable to make any headway on these core institutional problems that bedevil Pakistan. The dominance of the army, their patronage of militant organisations, their intrinsic support for anti-Indian terrorists, and even he as Prime Minister was not able to make that budge. But what's equally interesting is that even Pakistan liberals, even members of the PPP, the, the, the sort of sent the left wing socialist um, opposition, they've all turned around and said, they know he's right. They know what he said is the truth. But how dare he say it out loud? <laughs> how dare he say it to a news to a news a liberal a liberal you know left leaning newspaper that the world reads in English? This is an outrage. And so you know I just find it pitiful that instead of saying well done Nawaz Sharif, you've, you know at least this came years too late, but you've admitted it. We can get on with pressing the army to do something about this, um, which they nearly came close to doing uh, two years ago. Uh, no, instead we you know have this w- wall of silence that descends in on him and threatened to take legal action and Imran Khan says we should lock him up and put him on the exit control list. You know, this is a society that just cannot self-reflect, sadly. Uh, Mary, we are witnessing in action here, I think, a couple of quite universal rules of politics. One is that I'm sure, as you know, the best time to interview politicians is once they've left office and can (laughs) can therefore tell you what they actually always thought all along. And have been disqualified from future public (laughs) office. Ideally, yes. Uh, And and the other is, of course, that nothing uh, causes quite as much outrage, fury and anger as a politician actually speaking the plain obvious truth. No, I mean, this is this is absolutely true. Um, but I would have a sort of further question about all this, which is um, Shashank has sort of said, well, you know, everybody said, well, you know, we all know that it's true, but um, really you shouldn't be saying it out loud and certainly not to sort of um, English language um, organs. I mean, is there the slightest chance that this could make some sort of difference that there is gradually a sort of open debate about this and some sort of acknowledgement. And how's how's it going down in India? I mean, has there been any response? Well, in India, of course, the predictable reaction is, we told you so, yawn, you know, gleeful, setting off fireworks, (laughs) this is the army again. It's all very predictable. The the question I think is more interesting, as you ask, is will it make a difference? I think, actually, it's one of those things that could shut down the debate, sadly. You know, it could... What we're seeing is the paradox in Pakistan of elected politicians winning elections being allowed to win elections, not being kicked off in formal coups. But underneath the surface, the army tightening its grip on public institutions, on foreign policy, on national security. Right now in Pakistan, the big story is not Nawaz Sharif, it's the Pashtun protests occurring all across the country. What has the army done? They've taken television stations off the air for reporting them. They've suppressed newspapers. They've locked up the leaders of these protests. And we're seeing the walls close in on civil society, on dissenters, on, on contrarians in Pakistan. And 
sadly, I fear that uh, things like this will will actually make it even more difficult, particularly, of course, when you have a very hawkish nationalist, uncompromising prime minister in India who's not exactly the ideal partner for peace either. Just as a final thought on this one, uh, Shashank, with all due acknowledgement that this is the, the very definition of easier said than done, if Pakistan's government decided one day it actually wanted uh, to do something serious about Islamist militant groups operating from its territory, could it do it? Well, that's really gr- a good question. You know, they did that once. In 2007, the Chinese uh, uh, Chinese people, were uh, uh, workers were abducted by mil- Islamist militants. Uh, the Chinese prodded Pakistan into attacking what was the embryonic Pakistani Taliban. What happened? You had enormous bloodshed, a huge backlash. That would happen again. Lashkar-e-Taiba, thanks to the uh, uh, permissiveness of the Pakistani state, is a mini Hezbollah. It's very heavily armed. It's got its own territory. So I think the key is we don't expect them to sweep up these people in a week. It's a long, hard slog. What we expect is them not to be given national newspaper columns and being allowed to profess their violence uh, on television. Well, moving along slightly then, one country which is still speaking to Pakistan is its neighbour on the other side of the Durand line, Afghanistan. The two countries have agreed something called the Afghan Pakistan, Afghanistan sorry, Pakistan Action Plan for Peace and Solidarity, to be known by the catchy acronym APAPS, which is no <laughs> Max Thunder, frankly. It provides for joint cooperation against mutual security threats and the establishment of a mechanism for resolving disputes more sophisticated than the current method of calling each other names and blaming each other for everything in public. Um, Mary, how, I mean, how big a deal is this? Obviously, that, that relationship between those two countries has been, yeah, let's call it rickety. I think rickety <laughs> is, a, is, a, is, a, is a good word for it. it this is it, this can't be a bad thing, can it? Well, ex- exactly. It can't be a bad thing. And you think, well, how long has it taken to negotiate this? And there's there's an awful lot about it that's sort of lowest common denominator stuff. I mean, you can't say that this is that, that this is going to make a revolutionary change um, in relations. Um, and the the further question is whether it will make any change at all. You know, it's nice to have it there, and it probably you know probably um, it allows the two capitals to say that there is no great diplomatic achievement. But what difference it makes on the ground is hard to say because, again, this week what we've had is news from Afghanistan that suggests that even less territory is actually controlled by Kabul than currently appeared. So that the Taliban are making inroads um, and that... While the previous problem seemed to be that the, the seemed to be that the central government lacked control lacked control of a lot of the country, we've now got absolute proof that there are parts of the country and increasing parts of the country where it doesn't have control. So, Shashank, is this basically just an agreement to have an agreement? You know, it's too early to say. Um, if you go to Afghanistan, you will find that the you know you may think Indians don't like Pakistanis and don't trust them. Well, believe me, <laughs> Afghanistan the attitudes are even worse. I, I can't even begin to tell you the level of distrust uh, which is born of you know of a, a blurred border, years of Pakistani support for the Taliban, and so on. But um, what's interesting is is this is a multifaceted agreement. Part of it is you know motherhood and apple pie, and let's say nice things about each other, which is a break from saying about things about each other. But the other side of it is something more concrete. One of the clauses is specifically a promise that Pakistan will support an Afghan-led peace process. That's really important because, of course, the main Taliban leadership is based in Pakistan, is subject to influence by Pakistan's intelligence service. So 
if, with the blessing and the support of countries like China and the United States, we can see Pakistan doing more to facilitate the Taliban, the people sitting on their soil in cities like Quetta and Peshawar and the border areas, are being pushed in the direction of Kabul. And of course, the Taliban see the Kabul government as an illegitimate puppet regime. But if Pakistan can push them in that direction, and that it comes out of this, if we see concrete movement, I think that would be fantastic because that's what we need. That's not that's step one in a very long and arduous process. But of course, given the weakness of the Afghan government, given the fact the Americans will not stick around forever, you have to get the Taliban talking to Kabul. That will require Pakistani support. If this is a step on that journey, I think that's that's great news. Uh, Mary, you make the reasonable point uh, that the Taliban are not going anywhere. And indeed, they've demonstrated in the last 24 to 48 hours uh, exactly that, raiding the city of Farah uh, up in the west near the Iranian border. Uh, is there any, from their point of view, any any logic or imperative or point to talking to the government of Kabul? Are they now just not in that 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 guerrilla warfare state of just just waiting out their opposition? Well, I suppose there's probably two ways of looking at it, and one of them would be to say, well, <clears throat> maybe the, the 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 forays this week are part of a, a, a part of a, a, a bigger whole. They're part of maximising their position in case in the not-too-distant future, there might be some sort of negotiation, some sort of talks. Now, the other way of looking at it would be to say, well, they're just maximising their position regardless, and this is nothing to do with any prospect of talks. Um, so I think, you know, again, it's probably too early to judge. Um, and we don't yet know, I think, what the success of this week's um, operations by the Taliban were. I mean, I've seen so many conflicting reports. Some of them, you know, they've taken... They, they've taken in the whole city, others that there's still fighting going on, others that they were just sort of raiding it and everybody's still in place. So What I, I would add know. is that, that, that you know, let's not overestimate the Taliban's uh, or underestimate their weaknesses. They also have splits, you've got different factions, you know, and it's, it's not easy for them. Shashank Joshi and Mary Dijewski, thanks for joining us. That brings us to the end of today's show. It was produced by Ben Ryland, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Helena Jarit. Our studio manager was David Stevens. Music next at 1900. It's our business programme, The Entrepreneurs. There's more on the day's main stories on the daily at 2200. Midori House returns at the same time tomorrow, 1800 London time. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening. 